We will continue a little bit with the second of the right efforts. That is removal. But I want to remind everybody just the theory of mind from the point of view of Buddhism. And it's repeated endlessly through the suttas. It's amazing how quite often people don't grasp it or when they approach these things, they've only read a few suttas or have a vague idea and they unconsciously distort the approach of the Buddha to the other structures, other ways of looking at the mind, other theories of the mind. So the basic core theory is, first of all, that there's nothing of substance in the processes of the mind. When I say the mind, I also mean the heart, the emotional structure, which is the important part. It's not just the computer. It feels, and the feelings are given top priority. And the approach is that virtually anything, you can transform the mind in any way you wish. It's a causal mechanism. And if you put in certain causes, inevitably certain results will appear. Doesn't mean that it's not complicated or very sophisticated. And every nuance of it, the subtle details of how long a cause put in will take to have a result is almost incalculable because of numbers of sophisticated processes. But the basics are known, and there's a basic cause and effect between skillful causes put in and desirable results coming out. Also that the mind is entering into this existence fully loaded, deeply structured. This has a equivalence in Western philosophy and psychology. This argument, do you come in as a blank slate or do you come in pre-programmed? From the Buddhist point of view, deep structures are already there. And because of these structures, all the information in your environment and situation is filtered and transformed by the pre-existing structure. And we're quite often amazed by the spectrum of different personalities and how people experience their lives and how they feel about them, and including down to identical twins who can have very different experiences of life. The genetic structure was supposed to be the modern kind of explanatory structure and there was great hope placed in it but it turned out to be just a very partial explanation of who we are and seems to be more to it than that. So we're coming in with enormous potentials and what we can do and all that we can do. There's another theory of mind is that no exterior agency, i.e. God, is going to reach in there and start flicking switches. That the individual is going to 
flick switches and only the individual. Other exterior agencies like books and people can help. They can offer suggestions, but the individual is the one that flicks the switches. So it's beautiful to know that it's not chaotic, it's not random, and it's not controlled by exteriors. You are ultimately responsible for your future. It doesn't mean that it's just a matter of making a decision now. Those decisions that you make are already heavily weighted. So you can't do certain things. Not because there's no capacity to make choices. It's that the causes have not been put in for you to make certain types of choices and breakthroughs. The skills are not there. In other words, you can't just sit down. It's like everybody can play the piano. Yes, uh, if you practice enough, etc. But you can't just sit down and play it. There are occasionally this freakish phenomena prodigies where they seem to be able to almost play without any pre-existing practice. That shows you that they're coming in structured. But we can put in causes. And this is why the Buddha, he actually avoids one of the great philosophical discussions in the West, is there free will or not? Is it possible to make a choice that is not preconditioned or not? There were other philosophers at the time of the Buddha that held that, that you were actually predetermined completely. You couldn't make a new input into the situation. You were helplessly in the grip of fate. You were just going to unravel a whole process of causes. All you're going to do is be the helpless observer of it. The Buddha discounted that. He was familiar with that idea and abandoned that idea. The other one is that nothing you do matters. It's quite chaotic. And he said, that's an extreme as well. I take neither of those views. He takes the view that you are conditioned. You can very plainly see this. You have habit structures. And you're in a kind of a wrestling match with them sometimes. You're trying to make new decisions and not do that. And then you change your mind and do that. And it's very perplexing. So it's very obvious to us that we're not just turning on a dime. We're conditioned. But we're not absolutely conditioned. We're conditioned, but we're not determined. Now, the Buddha is an interesting philosopher. That question in the West is never ultimately it's, it's a logical conundrum that can never be fully dissolved. The Buddha is a pragmatic philosopher. He says, I will just tell you this, monks. I won't try to, I won't argue with you about this. This is one of those ultimate questions that needs to be set aside with only this information. Monks and lay people, you can make effort. If you could not make effort, I would not say make effort. But because you can make effort, therefore I say, O monks and lay people, make effort. Now, you could say that Buddhism is, if you want to call it a religion, a religion of effort. 
There is no bringing in external agencies, grace, etc., into this picture. You are left with, you can make effort, and now your job is to find out how to make effort, and what are the efforts that you should make. And if you center your whole practice around, if you get this really clear, and I'm telling you, it's amazing out there, people who are talking about Buddhism and so forth, that have not grasped the basic theory of mind taught by the Buddha extensively through the Pali Canon. They, they're going to just spin their wheels. If they don't have this, they're not going to commit themselves to this possibility that it's up to you and you have to find out how to make the effort. And as I've said once or twice before, it's not simply by observation. Purely being mindful and attentive does not solve the issue ultimately. It's not enough. Actions must be taken. Skillful actions. So we already talked about prevention as the first preference in terms of negative things. Please, just don't need to remove them, but presuming that a few have slipped through, then we're going to have to remove them. So that's the next thing. So some weeds, we, we have tilled the soil, we have put down mulch, but still a few weeds have slipped through, and now we're going to have to weed We're going to have to remove them. So we're removing any of the five hindrances that have arisen. And there are techniques for this and very, very adamant instructions and encouragements by the Buddha to do this. Now, that can be strange for people. They're not used to this. They kind of accept themselves as an identity and that they just have to accept themselves as they are. And that's the whole idea. And all these people that don't accept you, that's their problem, and you've got to accept yourself just as you are. Buddha is not into accepting yourself just as you are. He's into change. He's and also not really honoring your sense of who you are. So he's not into authenticity. <laughs> he is uh, into truth, truth about what you are experiencing, what your habits and so forth are, but he's not into honoring it as your authentic self. There's no authentic self. There's nothing authentic there. It's all, everything is up for change. Everything is up for removal or replacement, etc., including the opposite. You could have very good positive traits and you could easily lose them. If you get the wrong ideas and you don't understand and so forth, you don't preserve and cherish and cultivate positive types of structures that, are, that you have, you can easily lose them. You can go backwards in this process. You can, you can go downhill. And by the way, he says that in the vast majority of people do tend to go down, not up. It's easier to go downhill than it is to go uphill. And if you don't actually consciously make effort, the chances are you will decline. But if you get onto this 
this structure of effort and find out what is skillful in terms of effort, then the inevitable process is you will ascend. So the category of removal, assuming that you have failed to prevent the arising of these and now it has risen and it's pretty, I mean, it would be a miracle if if somehow you managed to never, just never experience one of the, the rising, you, you heard the Buddha say, no more hindrances for you, and then from that moment on, you know. There are a few people in the suttas that seem to have been able to do that. They attain enlightenment and just, just took them, you know, two minutes. <laughs> as young as eight years old as well. <laughs> you can get this, there's a, a few cases of children uh, attaining enlightenment, full full enlightenment. So it's not really uh, maturity or anything like this. There's a potential there. Apparently, but just by a little side quote there, you wonder how early could it happen. They say not before seven. They have a kind of a psychological profile of the development of children. And apparently that can't happen before about the age of seven. It's very interesting because modern children's psychologists and so forth, they also see the stages of development of children and somewhere around seven you begin to have this moral sense and so forth. But uh, it's possible to have breakthroughs and have very sudden um, clarity about this that's irreversible, that you don't lose. It's also possible to have breakthroughs that are not irreversible, you can, you can get clarity, breakthroughs, and so forth, but they're not the roots of the hindrances, which are called the samyojanas, the fetters. The deep roots of these have not been completely removed, and so they can come back, just like certain plants. If you just break off the plant, it looks like it's gone, but the roots are still there. Next year, they'll be there again. But you can have a very nice-looking garden for periods of time just by snipping them off. The ideal is that we have to get to the roots of this so that you don't come back. Now, the first preferred method is replacement. And replacement could... One of the systems that you can use is replacement by its opposite. So the opposite of this, of ill will, is loving kindness. The opposite of greed is generosity, or generosity or absence of desire, which we would, we call renunciation. Renunciation is really simply the absence of desire. Or even a kind of aversion or a, a repulsion to what was formerly desirable, now you have a distaste for. You can actually cultivate the opposite. If you want to get free from the idea of going into debt, whenever you have an object which you want but you don't have, you are in a state of debt, you are in a state of lack. And so if you suddenly 
just not only didn't want it, but really, really didn't want it, you would have no sense of lack. You would not be missing the object at all. So like addictions, for instance. People have addictions for all kinds of things, the most famous being drugs. But so the person, when they don't have the drug, they feel a sense of lack. And the lack is so intense that you must go and seek it out. So your action, that lack, that sense of lack is deficit, is debt. And there are all kinds of people who are not just don't want the drug, but are actually aversive to it, highly, uh, you would have to, you, 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 you couldn't force them to take the drug. They despise the experience. They don't like the experience. They're not in debt whatsoever. That's the opposite. Agitation, the opposite of agitation is serenity, and the opposite of sloth is energy, and the opposite of doubt is serene Ease. Doubt is a form of muddledness, lack of clarity and confusion, and the opposite of that is clarity and confidence. So when you see these hindrances come up, then your first method, and there is a sutta called Five Methods for Removing the Hindrances. And so also if you have come across an attitude where you're supposed to just watch this stuff. The Buddha has some very, very specific advice about deliberate, prompt effort, and it's very prompt. He talks about how fast can you do this. He says if a person is really practicing with mindfulness and right effort, he says the negative thoughts can arise, negative emotions, the hindrances can arise. But the mind of the person who's really practicing well is like a frying pan that's been heated for an hour over a hot fire. And a, you take a drop of water and you, a drop of water falls in the frying pan. It, pssst, it, it evaporates like that. That is his suggestion for if your mind is really sharp and alert to this, that's how long that hindrance will remain in your mind as long as a drop of water hitting the surface of a red-hot iron frying pan. Psst. Not more than half a second. You can see that he's very big on not tolerating this stuff, not being with this stuff, but preventing, if possible, not having it, and if you can't manage it, then to remove it the moment it occurs stopping it as soon as possible before it, it, it... You're not really exploring it, you know. You're not honoring it. You're not exploring it. You're not accepting it as your authentic self or any of these things. None of that is the case. You're very dispassionately removing. And so that is the preferred first method, is just to fill in with a positive structure, which then, and we'll talk about it tomorrow or... I presume I will not get to it tonight, but tomorrow we will talk about bringing into existence these positive qualities and maintaining and deepening. That's on the positive side of right effort. But right now we're talking about removal. So this has to be understood deeply. What your duty is to this, 
how fast you should do this, and you should be concerned about the... The Buddha says, you know, that, this stuff doesn't merely rise and pass away, actually. Anger, especially anger, does not merely rise and pass away. Anger, actually, every time you have it, it actually leaves a, a trace. And the trace is a tendency, you have actually increased the tendency to do it again. And so that's, karma is, one of the ways of talking about karma is, karma is just cause and effect. Cause and effect in the emotional dimension, the moral dimension, the workings of the mind dimension. So it's, karma is actually the verb to do. Uh, and then there's something which comes after doing, and that is the fruit of that experience. So anger doesn't merely rise and pass away and have no consequence whatsoever. It actually has a, will have a fruit. It will have a resultant. So there's a great deal more concern and awareness about anger in the Buddhist teachings than there is in modern psychology. Modern psychology quite often will say, oh, well, it's just natural being, you know, don't, don't fret, but as long as you don't kill anybody, but, you know. No, it's not, it's not that, it's not a harmless thing. It's not, you should not take it as just human nature and so forth. It's something to be very, very diligent about preventing and removing, actually. So, this removal, of course, can be done through opposites, but any wholesome replacement can work. So you can replace anger with generosity or equanimity or any form of wholesome emotion, which is positive, and the thought process and the emotion which accompanies it, the feeling which accompanies it, as long as it's in the wholesome dimension, it is fine as a replacement for any of the hindrances. So the reason for the opposite replacement is that it's the farthest. So if you start the day with the determination for loving kindness, it's much, the momentum of that loving kindness is much likelier to prevent the arising of the opposite, which is anger or hatred. And so if you can replace anger with loving kindness, you're that much more likely the momentum of that to not have to replace this again or not encounter it again. It's amazing how this works. I don't know why, you know, I, I'm born and raised in this culture and I, I read psychology and philosophy and all these things. And it just, it's not a, it's not, you're walking down the street and you're an educated person and it, that kind of stuff, I don't know where, it just isn't in the culture. I don't know where, why it isn't, but it wasn't clear to me until I encountered Buddhism. And some of the Buddhist teachings I encountered were not clear on that either. But as you read the suttas, you will see he's very clear on this. This is a, his theory of mind and how it works and how you fix it and how you increase well-being and so forth. So this is um, very important to get clear and to be adept. And it's not good enough to just kind of, what did they say about 
hindrances or something. You know, that it's kind of like being a musician where you can't think, now, where is C on the... Oh, yeah, it's over here. It's not good enough. It's got to be instant. You, it has to be just built into your system. You know what to do. You practice this. And so it's also good to just take this and, you know, just take one little section of the teaching like this and say, for the next month, I'm just going to, I'm going to play with this. Like from morning to night, I'm going to try to remember this and remind myself of this five, six, eight times a day. Just see what happens if I do this. What would it be like to really just catch this the moment it arises and just stop and then replace, stop, replace, stop, replace? What would happen? And, of course, the prevention. Really focusing on this until it becomes second nature, actually. You'd find yourself doing this without having to make a decision. It it kicks right in. We can train ourselves in almost any way to, to... bring this into the system and for it to become second nature. So you won't even have to think, oh, wait, I'm angry. And now what was the thing? Oh, yes, right. That was, so that's, too, that's a bit too long. And so it starts to, to kick in right away without even being all that conscious of it. You just find yourself doing it. So that's a, that's a way to exercise with this and to, to just give it a shot for an extended period of time just to see what, how it feels because you can come out the other side very different it's when you start to see this working clearly has a result of having practiced it it's liberating it means that you can pretty well get anywhere from where you are it's like learning about maps and how you can find your way around a city you know So if that doesn't work, the next process is to, because sometimes you just can't, you know, the, the uh, hindrance is too strong, the anger, the greed, the so forth, it doesn't respond to that, and so you have to go deeper. The Buddha has this structure of five processes, and they, they're more or less in order. So the next one is inducing a sense of reflection on your own personality and how uh, these types of attitudes are kind of, diminishments of your character they're actually kind of flaws it's like he gives the example of a of a teenager who's going on a for a relationship a date and so forth they look into the mirror and they have a a, a, they have a dead snake hanging around their neck actually it's quite an exaggerated kind of thing and so they are they going on a date with a dead snake hanging around their neck no i guess not unless they're punk but (laughs) no they're they're horrified by the sight and they remove it because they're they're dismayed by their the disfiguration of their own beauty we don't want to be disfigured and the hindrances disfigure us they impair and impede our sense of beauty, our capacity for beauty. There's nothing more beautiful than, a, than an act of generosity. And there's what is definitely not beautiful is an act of miserliness or, you know, open greed. You see somebody just pigging it all to themselves, you know, keeping it. It's just it's a, such a diminished kind of thing. What is beautiful is open-hearted loving-kindness and 
compassion, all of this. And then what is ugly is hatred and hostility and anger. It's, it's, a, it's an obnoxious, it's a, a ugly trait. And uh, we need to reflect on it. We see it in others. We see the beauty in others. And we should cultivate that beauty in ourselves as well. And including the beautiful quality of energy versus sloth, the quality of serenity and calm versus agitation and anxiety, and the quality of clarity versus confused doubt. These are all beautiful. And when they arise in us, they are accompanied by beautiful feelings as well. They never arise without an accompanying beautiful feeling. So this is a reflection on that. And you can also bring in the consideration of another, somebody you respect who has these positive traits. And then you think, well, what would they think? What would they say now about this miserliness or this anger that I'm so you're deliberately trying to cultivate some sort of sense of respect and honor for those who have those beautiful traits because that helps you with a sense of like, yeah, they would not be pleased with this. So that's concern for the opinion of the wise. That also has an implication. It means that you have no concern for the opinion of the foolish because there will be an invitation to join others in anger. There will be an invitation to join others in miserliness, in laziness and all kinds of things, to join them. And that means that you must have no concern for that social peer pressure. If you have high regard for the opinion of the wise, you have no regard for the opinion of the foolish. Now, this is hard because human nature is very social and more or less humans have regard for others. Like, they're concerned about judgment in general. Like, how is everybody seeing me? And if if the group around them has got distorted kind of low-class uh, opinions, they will respond to that. They will want acceptance. So they will have concern for the opinion of the foolish. So we have to actually change our, we're challenging our own human nature. In fact, sometimes we will be alienated from certain parts of society, certain parts of even families and so forth. If they do not have wise behavior, if they're not participating in the beautiful, we must disregard their opinions about us. So we have only covered two of the five, and I've really spent a lot of time on the nature of removal and the importance of removal. And the overarching theory of the mind that the Buddha has, and I will just leave it for that tonight, and I will continue the other techniques for removal before we go on to the positive stuff that you, how to bring the positive stuff up and how to keep that. But that is enough for tonight. <laughs> 